Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center. This is episode 114, The Value of the Moon. I'm Pat Ryan. On this podcast, we talk with scientists, engineers, astronauts, and other folks about their part in America's space exploration program. And today, we're going to talk about the target of a lot of our current efforts, the moon. NASA's Artemis program is focused on returning American astronauts to the moon by 2024 through the use of the Space Launch System rocket, the Orion spacecraft, the Gateway Lunar Outpost, and a new lunar lander, and to do so in a sustainable way. That is, to go to the moon to stay, to learn how to support astronauts in that environment and, in the process, get ourselves ready to go on from there to Mars. As a part of that mission, we mean to make the best use of the natural resources on the moon. And that's very different than what the Apollo program set out to do 50 years ago. It also prompts an echo of President Kennedy's question, why the moon? Well, today we're going to start scratching the surface of answering that question by talking to the self-described cheerleader-in-chief for the moon. Dr. Samuel Lawrence is a planetary scientist in the Astromaterials Research and Exploration Science Division here at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, and he is the lead lunar exploration scientist at JSC. His research is focused on using petrology, which is the study of rocks and the conditions under which they form. I know because I looked it up. His research is focused on using petrology and remote sensing to investigate the composition, origin, and evolution of planetary surfaces. He's been heavily involved in the development and testing and the science operations of the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is now 10 years into studying the moon up close. He is also busy in Project Artemis in the formulation of science objectives and operations for the next generation of exploration on the moon. As they say, we are going. And today we talk about what we hope to do and to learn when we get there. Okay then, here we go. T minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circle There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Let me start by helping to introduce the audience to who you are. Um, where does your interest in the moon come from? Is it come out of the Apollo missions from 50 years ago or, or some other aspect of astronomy or geology? Uh, well, that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, back uh, when I started into graduate school in 2000s, the uh, um, discovery of the potential microfossils and the meteorite ALH84001 was in the news. And so, like many people, I actually went to graduate school to do Mars work, to yeah. work on Mars. But I've always been interested in lunar exploration starting, uh, you know, I was a kid growing up. We had the, the space shuttle had just started to fly. That's the reason why I'm here. You know, it was one of my earliest memories is watching uh, Columbia launch on, on her first flight as STS-1. And mm -hmm. so that that's very inspirational. It has an effect on people. And keep in mind, the space shuttle wasn't just, um, you know, at the time it was first launching, it was uh, the tool that was going to open up the space frontier to the human species, and we were all going to get a chance to ride in the space mm -hmm. shuttle. We were going to go there yeah, back we and forth go, all the time. Yeah, you, I, had a, um, I had a pamphlet that was put into a lot of Cheerios boxes uh, <laughs> when Columbia's first uh, flights were going off. It was like, you will ride to work one day in a space shuttle. And you read that <laughs> stuff, and it, it, it does have an impact on you. And I think that actually did pull in a lot of young people in the early 1980s into science, technology, engineering, and math fields. So it does have a, you know, the space program does have a demonstrable impact on what young people choose to do with their careers. And um, But again, during the 80s, you know, the, it was sort of assumed that we would all be, you know, 21st century is right on the corner. We would have moon bases and people on Mars. And uh, the first President Bush hopped up there in 1988 and says we're going to go back to the moon to stay and then on to Mars. And, right. and so like most people, like most fourth graders, when the president hops up there and says that, you might reasonably expect it's going to happen. And it's really kind of a shame it really didn't turn out the way um, we had been told. That is truly unfortunate because it, it does indicate something about our ability to make and follow long-term plans as a as a culture and as a society. But that, anyway, to answer your actual question, um, and I'd always figured I would go to college to be an aerospace engineer. But I read, uh, you know, growing up in the in the 90s, 
um, you know, there was a lot of backing and forthing. And so, uh, and I read some iPads by a guy named Paul Spudis, and I was like, wow, this, this makes really good sense. And so I was very excited about aerospace. I was going to go to college to be aerospace. And then I read a book by um, the legendary lunar geologist Don Wilhelms who did a lot of work during Apollo. And it was very interesting. And I had this very um, this epiphany that if you're really going to do space in the 21st century, that understanding where the resources are to enable human exploration is going to be a really important question. And you're talking and about so the resources that are, are, that are that out, out there in space. In space. That's right, yeah. yes. And... Um, and so I changed course slightly and became a geologist. And, you know, geology is a very interesting field. It's, uh, it's very integrated. At any given day, we might have to, you know, understand biology and physics and thermodynamics and chemistry and, uh, in order to understand the history of rocks and how it worked on this planet. And in the, in the book that Don Wilhelms wrote, To a Rocky Moon, he made the really cogent point that up until the um, space age, the moon had been an object of fascination for astronomers. But the space program and the space race converted it into an object we could explore and understand using principles of terrestrial geology to understand how the moon worked. And the great gift of Apollo was that it essentially opened up our understanding of the entire solar system and the universe around us in a way that we could understand. And so when I went to college, I went, or when I went to graduate school, rather, um, to get my doctorate in planetary science, I originally did it to do Mars work, and then I met a, um, and then I just sort of realized there was a lot of interesting stuff to be done on the moon, and everyone else was doing Mars work, so I uh -huh. figured I might as well just switch over to moon work, and then I, I'll have less competition, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, proved to be an interesting choice. Have you been at NASA for your whole career? No, no. I was hired uh, three years. I, um, I was on the research faculty at Arizona State University, and I was hired at Johnson Space Center three years ago specifically to shore up their uh, lunar expertise in anticipation of a new program of lunar exploration. I read uh, an article in Getting Ready for Today that quoted you as saying, the moon is the Rosetta Stone for the whole solar system. That's actually That's true. Pretty high praise. Yeah. Um, tell me why you think that. What is it that we can learn studying the moon that teaches us about the rest of the solar system? Well, that is a very good question. So in general, when we went to the moon the first time, we didn't really understand. There were still major questions in the 60s about where did the moon come from. There were there are these features on the lunar surface that look very much like rivers, and so there were people, serious scientists, making serious suggestions. There might have been liquid water on the moon at one point. They look just like rivers, um, so they must be. Well, that's the um, evidence of your eyes, and if it's the only evidence you right. have, that's right. So uh, then we went to the moon, and we discovered, as I sort of alluded to previously, that. The, the moon gave us this insight into planetary processes, the way geology works in other planets. And one of the reasons, um, so when we actually we discovered, we actually landed in one of those things that looks like a river. Right. We discovered it was actually a lava channel, and the moon had never had liquid water on its surface, and that the moon was not just an asteroid that had been captured in lunar orbit, but we discovered that it was uh, very similar to a, a rocky planet. You know, it had a crust, a mantle, and a core, and it had very likely been created by a, a Mars-sized impactor hitting the primordial Earth, and then the, um, the materials thrown off by that impact aggregated in low-Earth orbit and differentiated into the moon. It's, it's formerly a piece of this planet. Right, which explains why the chemistries of the two bodies are so similar in some respects. They're very different in others, but in some respects, they are actually pretty similar. And, and so, but the biggest reason why I say that the moon is the resistance of the solar system is we landed with astronauts who did field work in key locations on the lunar surface. From that field work, they, they picked up samples, they, they did geology in the field, they selected, they carefully selected samples, well, more carefully in some cases than others, <laughs> but they selected samples that were tied back to specific locations on the lunar surface. And from that, we brought it back here to Houston and then distributed those samples all over the world and just did radiometric age dating, figured out how old those samples were. And very similarly to, um, you know, when you cut down a tree, you count the number of rings, right. and that tells you how old the tree is. Well, on, a, on another planet, especially ones that don't have atmospheres, it is the number of craters that tells you that can be used to infer how old the surface is. The more craters there are, the older the surface Longer is. Longer it's been there That's and right. exposed to, exposed to the passing asteroids. That's right. 
And so it's, you know, that there are always exceptions to every rule, and that's sort of a gross oversimplification of it. But in general, that rule holds. The older the surface, the more craters there are. So what you could do is you could count the areas near the Apollo landing sites, how many craters are on those areas, and then figure out, because we have samples, the radiometric age dates, you know, see how old they were. And then that time scale has actually been extended to every single one of the inner terrestrial planets, Mercury, Mars, Vesta. Um, and it really is this gift that has kept on giving. You, know, you can make a pretty good case, in a sense, it is actually what happened, that uh, most of the discoveries we've made in planetary science over the past five decades are directly or indirectly related to the discoveries made by the Apollo astronauts on the surface of the moon. Mm -hmm. um, that was landing in six locations for only a few days at a time, right. for over a two-year period. So imagine what's going to happen when we go back to stay. I, I cannot predict it. Uh, that's why you explore, right? Um, but in general, we do really need to go back to the moon and get more samples and understand the ra radiometric age dates of other locations on the moon because it sort of turned out that the Apollo, um, the six Apollo landing sites and the Soviet landing sites were all actually in a very... Um, very narrow band along the equator of the moon, and they're not actually truly representative of the moon as a whole. Not so distributed across around the whole that's body. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so we do actually need to go back and get more samples and understand when things happened on the moon, and that will actually help us to understand when things happened in all the other terrestrial planets, too. So that's one of the key objectives for what we're going to do for future lunar missions as well. I, I must ask for everyone like me that doesn't know precisely what radiometric dating is. Well, there are certain isotopes that decay over time. If you've, uh, I guess it's, <laughs> for those of us who grew up during the Cold War, it's probably an easier, uh, easier story to tell than others. But <laughs> basically, um, when a rock is erupted and forms onto a planetary body, it has certain elements that degrade naturally over time, the radio, radioactive decay. Mm -hmm. You can measure the abundances and the way the decay rates are known. They've been measured in laboratories. You can measure the amount of element of these radio, radionuclides in a rock and figure out, based on how what the abundances are, how old the rock is. How long it's been yeah. deteriorating. How long in the, order. That's right. How long the radio elements have been uh, decaying over time. And then do math and figure it out. Mm -hmm. You see, that's the math part. Is, is the hard part. That's, uh, that's actually the, the easy part. It's the <laughs> measurement that's the hard part, but sure. Um, the... You, you, you've touched on, started to touch on some of the, the importance of the science of, of what we can learn at the moon. We learned about the age of the planets from the moon. How do you characterize generally, and then we'll get more specific, about the value of the science that we can get from going to the moon? Oh, it's immense. And the value you get from sending human explorers is going to be even larger. I think one of the key uh, points I like to make, which I sort of already have made, is that we only landed on the moon with human beings six times, and they only explored a very small, vanishingly small area of the lunar surface. Mm -hmm. And they had intense schedule pressure, intense time pressure, and you'll always have that in spaceflight. But if you're going back, and our, our paradigm this time around is different, we're not going on camping trips. We're going to stay. Mm -hmm. And that means you're, we're going to, um, if you've listened um, so right now at NASA, our focus right now is the 2024 landing, the Artemis III mission. But beyond you know, what comes after that is still still working on it, still in development. Right. But uh, uh, the Space Council and the Vice President and the Administrator have all been very clear, we're going this time to stay, and that requires a paradigm shift. It's not a camping expedition. It's, it's we're going to go back and establish some sort of permanent presence on the lunar surface and hopefully enable sustainable exploration in a way that doesn't, you know, Apollo was fantastic, but Apollo got canceled, and well, we don't want to have that happen And again. Apollo wasn't meant to go there to stay. Th those missions were meant to go there for those short periods right. of times and come home. It's not like it was their fault, but now we're doing something different. That's right. We're going there to stay there to learn more about the place and to learn how we can That's stay right. there for a long time, long periods of time. That's right. Um, are there certain aspects that you, you think of lunar science, if that's the right phrase to use, that are, are more valuable? Uh, what are the are more the valuable areas of science that we can learn about? Well, I think there's a lot, um, obviously. Uh, there's, uh, in terms of um, 
understanding fundamental processes in the solar system, you know, the impact process, it affects every single planet in the solar system, not just the moon. It affects Earth. That's why we're having this conversation, not, you know, some dinosaur radio show or something, <laughs> right? I mean, that's why we're here. Um, so it, the impact process is fundamental. Understanding how what exposure to the space environment does to a surface. Uh, understanding the physics of how light interacts with the surface, to understand how spec, you know, how you use remote sensing techniques to interpret mineralogy and composition. Um, all of these are fundamental processes across the solar system, and the moon is a natural laboratory for them. The, the moon also records the first billion years of the history of the Earth-Moon system. So on Earth, we have plate tectonics, and that tends to recycle, uh, you know, the continents, you know, materials. Uh, from the earliest part of Earth, when one-celled organisms were starting to crawl out of under the ground and get onto the surface and start the long evolutionary path that resulted in us, um, that's all gone. We don't have that record on this planet anymore. Because it shuffled up the evidence. Yes, well, the evidence was destroyed by plate right. tectonics. Mm -hmm. But that evidence is there on the moon. The moon actually does record, because it's the Earth-Moon system, it does repeat it in the first billion years is available and can be found on the moon. It's not something you can say, well, we're going to go to this spot and find it. But with a long-term presence on the lunar surface and lots of astronaut field work, you will find it eventually. Because, because there aren't plates and that's tectonics right. on the no moon. There's no plates. There's no mm -hmm. tectonics. There's no recycling. You know, you will find it on the moon. And that's very interesting. That will tell us a lot about the rise. You know, we're always... Um, uh, we're always talking about how to find life in the solar system, but how life evolved on Earth is a very, very important question for us. And that a key part of that story is told on the moon and only accessible there. Not, it's not just the lack of plate tectonics. The moon doesn't have weather right. or, or no other one. things that would disturb the evidence of these ancient events. That's right, yeah. Um, does the moon have natural resources? Well, that's one of the great discoveries we made during Apollo. So even before, um, even before we started to understand uh, the nature of the polar volatile deposits that everyone is talking about today, even during the Apollo missions, we began to have an understanding that the moon actually did have a lot of resources that could enable future human exploration. Um, uh, Jack Schmidt, uh, the only geologist who ever flew to the moon, sampled a thing called a pyroclastic deposit at the Apollo 17 site. And it turns out those are spread across the near side of the moon. They have a uniform chemical composition. We can use simple chemistry to extract water and oxygen from these materials. Hmm. There's large. And so um, this field of, uh, and we had, you know, lunar, lunar base concepts in the 80s that would have worked that used these deposits as the feedstock to sustain astronauts on the lunar surface. So, you know, we've been thinking about this problem for a long time. And then in 1994, uh, the Clementine mission was flown, and that discovered the first tantalizing hints of potential water deposits or potential volatile deposits, I should say, at the lunar poles. You want to make the distinction between water deposits and volatile deposits? Well, there's a perception out there that there are these skating rinks uh, <laughs> and hidden on the, in the lunar poles. And uh, unfortunately, or uh, that is not in fact the case, We've uh, uh, our uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter mission has shown that there are no observable skating rinks at the mm -hmm. lunar poles. No big slabs of ice. No big slabs of ice. But they has detected pretty conclusively, and the, uh, there was a mission called LCROSS, the Lunar Crater Remote Observation Sensing Satellite. Good that for was you. co-manifested on the LRO launch in 2009 that impacted into uh, Cabela's Crater on the moon and discovered the unambiguous presence of water, H2O, and a lot of other possibly economically useful materials as well, like methane. So... And the reason this works, we sort of skipped a step there, is that the moon has a slightly tilted orbit. And so there are areas of the lunar poles where the sun both never stops shining, or effectively, you know, where you have a lot of illumination, and where the sun never shines. And when you say tilted, you're saying, is that in reference to, to, the, sun. to the sun? That's right. And, and the side of the moon that we see is the same side all the time. That's right, because the moon is tidally locked. And there is no dark side of the moon. This isn't an Isaac Asimov novel. There's a far side of the moon, which we never get to see, but it does get the same day-night cycle uh, that the rest of the moon does. But at the lunar poles, and this is why this is the target for the Artemis program, there are these areas of near-permanent illumination. And that has a couple of uh, very positive effects. It means that the lunar night 
only lasts for something like six to seven days at a stretch as opposed to 14 days. And you get 200-day periods each year where the sun never stops shining. And so mm. it's a great spot to put down um, a stakehold and try to figure out how to live and work on other planets. Because you would have 200 days of sunlight to provide power? That's right. Mm. And it's also a benign thermal environment, too. So on the moon, there's this diurnal day-night cycle with uh, a, a, an extreme of temperatures. And at the poles, it, the swing is much less. It makes it easier to design habitats. It makes it easier to design um, systems to enable astronaut habitation on the surface. The, the change is less, but still, what's the temperature we're talking about? It's not, it's not an Earth kind of temperature. Uh, it's equivalent to what you'd see on the International Space Station. So you're looking at around 200 degrees Fahrenheit in the daytime. Okay. So it's, a, it's an environment that we already kind of know how to live in. That's right. Mm -hmm. We were talking about natural resources. Are, are these natural resources, it, it sounds like, that would be useful to us in order to be able to go there and stay, as opposed to resources that are valuable that people would want to go and, and take away and sell somewhere? It's very difficult to make the case that anything you mine in space is ever going to come back to Earth for now. That could change in the future, but for right now, the most near-term utility for lunar resources or any space resources, and the asteroids are chock full of useful things too, mm -hmm. is for people in space. So the things we're interested in are oxygen. Oxygen is rocket propellant, the stuff you, stuff you breathe. We're interested in the possible you know, volatiles, which is hydroxyl OH negative, um, because that can be easily split off into oxygen and hydrogen, which is rocket fuel. Um, so there are you know the near term and the things. oxygen is is also is, is water well you, or, or it's the other way around yeah, yeah. The, yes the water yeah. can be easily converted to oxygen and hydrogen right. so um, you know we we care about these things because oxygen is not only stuff you breathe but it's oxidizer for rocket fuel the hydrogen could also be rocket fuel and and so like i said the near-term thing is going to be focusing on enabling and making human exploration more sustainable and the reason why is that it takes roughly six times the uh there's a six to one gear ratio for getting stuff to the moon is sort of the lingo and that's because for every pound you get to the you have to take to the lunar surface it takes roughly six pounds of fuel to get it there okay so give or take mm -hmm. so any anything you can make on the lunar surface will eventually pay for itself uh, no matter how you know and people you always hear people talk about oh you know launch prices will go down eventually sure maybe but this doesn't change the fact you're still going to take six times as much fuel to get something to the lunar surface mm -hmm. so the more you can make on the moon the easier it will be to sustain a human presence there the less you have to take the less you have to take the less ex of your resources that's here right. on earth you have and to that, expend for that portion of it that's right and also you have to learn how to live off the land if you're ever going to do mars sustainably too because you're much much farther away than you know going to mars is a much bigger technological leap and to really do it right if you're again if you're going to do it in a way that doesn't eventually get canceled um, you want to have a sustainable presence on the martian surface you'll have to learn how to live off the land and use local resources so it's an important paradigm shift and we can get started doing it on the moon you've made reference to the lunar south pole uh, as a place where water ice has has been found are there other of these valuable materials also in that same general region does making it a, a nice target for us to want to go to first i mean what do you mean valuable materials uh, well the other natural oh, resources oh, other natural that, resources well you can take lunar regolith and crack oxygen out of it pretty much anywhere in the moon so and regolith add, is uh, lunar soil okay yeah so you, and can, you can get oxygen out of the dirt yeah it's chemistry you can you can do it so you can um, some of the higher grade resources are only found in the equatorial uh, regions of the moon. So we'll have to, like I said, we want, this is a marathon, not a sprint. So we want to try to s establish a beachhead at the lunar south pole and then eventually branch out to doing other missions to other places uh, with inc gradually increasing capability. And that, that is why the moon is very interesting because uh, it's not just an interesting scientific target, it's an interesting exploration target. And we're not, we have, we don't, we don't just want to go to the moon and stay there. Going to the moon actually gives you the capabilities you need 
to go anywhere you want in the solar system with any capability you might actually have. The things that we can learn by going to the moon and staying and teach us. And the workforce us. and the technologies required to go back to the moon will re-energize the aerospace industrial base and give us a body of knowledge which, you know, I mean, uh, has been is has been lost or is on the verge of being lost. The Apollo generation is leaving us. Mm -hmm. No one no one alive or very few people present at the agency today had uh, uh, have designed a vehicle that's landed human beings on another world. And so right. we actually need to we need to relearn how to do stuff we once learned how to do. So we've been talking for a few minutes about what there is on the moon and it occurs to me to to make sure I understand how we know that. I mean, we didn't, it's been 50, almost 50 years since the last human beings went there and gathered up samples for us to bring back. But is, is that the primary way that we know about what's on the moon or have we learned it from other things? And I'm, and I'm thinking particularly of the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that you also worked on. <laughs> right, well, in the, uh, over the past two decades, we've had a nice renaissance in lunar exploration because it's not, um, yeah, like I said, the moon is a very accessible target, and so it's something we can actually get to relatively straightforwardly. And so we've had starting the Clementine mission, which gave us our first global mineralogic maps of the moon and the first tantalizing hints of polar volatile deposits. We've also had a series of international missions. So we've had uh, our, our colleagues in, uh, in India launch the Chandrayaan mission, Chandrayaan-1, mm -hmm. and you have Chandrayaan-2 on its way to the moon right now. We have had uh, the European Space Agency launched SMART-1. Um, our colleagues in uh, Japan launched the Kaguya mission. And Kaguya was a fantastic mission. It, was, uh, it, it produced a, a tremendously valuable global data set for mineralogy and composition and topography. And then we also have finally had the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which was launched in 2009 as the first um, uh, step of the, uh, the first actual mission launch as part of the vision for space exploration. President Bush's uh, former program to return to the moon to stay and go on to Mars. And so LRO really, um, I think, is an example of how, um, you know, there's uh, how science can enable human exploration. The mission was an uh, exploration mission, uh, uh, an ESMD, Exploration Systems Mission Directorate mission, but it was staffed by science mission directorate scientists, and it was explicitly designed to collect the data needed to enable a program of lunar exploration. But along the way, it also produced fantastic paradigm-shifting science and reinforced the moon's status as the cornerstone of planetary science. So we've made a series of very important discoveries, uh, among them the abundance of volatile deposits at the lunar, lunar polar regions, but also new details of lunar mineralogy, lunar chemistry, uh, the lunar landforms, are, we can see with LRO's uh, camera system, landforms as small as a meter in diameter. Wow. So we've discovered all kinds of interesting things about lunar geology and the physics of the impact process and, and created a whole new set of places we really want to send uh, astronauts and their robotic precursors. So it's, it's um, 10 years into the mission. We have fuel for another six or seven more years of operations. Um, I'm it's my fondest hope that we can actually have LRO still in orbit and taking images when the next American steps onto the surface are taken. That'd We're going to have overhead nice, shots. Yeah, that'd be a nice uh, symbolic closure of the mission. It would. We've talked about, I, I wanted to set the stage for, to, for what there is there on the moon uh, to talk about what we would find when we go back. Part of your current portfolio is that you're working on developing the scientific objectives and the ways to do research during the uh, Artemis missions that are, are coming up. Um, it's still early in, in still Artemis. Early. Can you, to the extent that you can, what's the outline of, of, of flights as we understand it so far? What, sure. what, what's, well, what's the early plan? Well, we had a, a, an exciting conference in uh, January of 2018 called the Lunar Science for Landed Missions Workshop that went through and it was a great meeting and it went through, it was sponsored by our friends at the Solar System Exploration Research Virtual Institute. And it, had, it was at the Ames Research Center and that was a great meeting. It was the science community coming together and going, these are our high priority targets for where we'd like to send um, precursor missions and, and also it was mainly focused on precursor missions but all the stuff from that workshop is equally applicable to the human missions. Um, so 
uh, an inherent part of the Artemis concept is that we have this thing called the Lunar Ex- Discovery and Exploration Program. So part of that is going to be um, it's it's a it's an exciting program. It's leveraging the power of American enterprise and American industry to create. Um, a whole new set of lunar landing uh, vehicles and designs to carry payloads to the lunar surface. And as part of that program, we actually, as part of LDEP, we're going to be landing exciting new missions for science um, at various spots around the lunar surface. I can't, I don't know where they're going to be landing, but uh, they've selected instruments and they've selected payloads and there's several contractors working right now to create new American lunar landing systems that will take um, U.S. payloads to the lunar surface. So that's really exciting. And that's a key capability because, as I've mentioned previously, it's been five decades (laughs) since the United States landed a spacecraft on the lunar surface. So I view LDEP as a really important part um, of our lunar portfolio, and I'm really looking forward to the discoveries those missions are going to make. And to be, if I can, to be clear, the LDEP payloads are are not humans down to the moon. That's these, right. These are our research missions. That's right. But for this to work and work sustainably, we're going to have to have robots and humans working together. And I think that will, it, it really does act as a force multiplier, and it's going to make our exploration more effective and efficient and affordable when we can have a regular cadence of missions going to the lunar surface. Because it won't. Um, I could see uh, scenarios where you are flying payloads designed to understand how to produce resources on the lunar surface sure. to the moon on these LDEP um, payloads. If we're going to make use of those resources, we've got to have the tools, have to, the do tools it. to do it. So I think this sort of syner- it's a very good synergy between the mission directorates. It's a very exciting program, and it's very innovative. It's, it's going to be, I think, really exciting to see what American commerce can bring to the game in a way that is designed to enable innovation. Uh, and then moving on uh, beyond LDEP, which is our, you know, our first missions as part of so-called uh, you know, Artemis umbrella are gonna be LDEP missions okay. in the early 2020s. And then we have the Artemis three, and that's the first team in mission, uh, first uh, uh, as part of the Artemis program, the, presumably the seventh human lunar landing. Uh, and we have um, a clear direction from uh, above to land at the lunar south pole, which is a very interesting location. Like I said, there's, there's, um, there are. Uh, it's an interesting environment that is enabling for future human exploration for long durations on the lunar surface. There's potential access to these volatile deposits, which are not only interesting as a potential resource, but are also interesting scientifically, because it's that. Um, like I said, the first billion years of history. So. Uh, we can go to these volatile deposits and presumably understand how organics and other cometary materials evolved over time in the solar system. That's an interesting thing scientifically. And there's also rocks we can pick up and potentially multiple, um, uh, potentially sampling multiple lunar terrains uh, with access uh, to the south, or excuse me, which could be accessed by landing at the South Pole and by astronauts doing field work. So it's an interesting location. Uh, we're still working on some of the details here, but in general, the idea is astronauts will land there, get out of uh, the spacecraft, do spacewalks, and make some very interesting new discoveries as they start to figure out what it's going to take to learn how to live and work on other planets. So if, if that's Artemis three, Artemis one and two are the are LDEP missions? No, no, those no. are the um, okay. those are the missions formerly referred to as Exploration Mission One and Exploration Mission Two on the Space Launch System. So those are I uh, those are Orion test flights mm-hmm. in cislunar space. Okay. And Artemis three gets the first humans back to the moon. That's right. And you, you made reference there, if I can, there's a little exit ramp there. You were talking about doing exploration and, and finding evidence of the evolution of, uh, of, of comets? Or well, there? sort of. Uh, that was okay. um, perhaps inelegantly phrased by me. The, what I'm alluding to here is, again, the moon preserves this first billion years of history of the Earth-Moon system. And, as, and they um, the reason why uh, you have these polar volatile deposits is that, again, the moon has these areas where the sun never shines. And when comets, which are sort of wet, muddy ice balls, hit the moon, those volatiles um, during the lunar day-night cycle literally hop from one spot to another on the lunar surface, and eventually they get trapped in these cold traps at the poles. That process has presumably been going on for most of the history of the solar system. So by going to these um, volatile deposits in the lunar polar regions and um, 
studying them, and we will get some of this data as we use these resource deposits for uh, uh, for resources, as we do resource extraction. As you start mm -hmm. to really dig down into these deposits, um, you will get interesting information about how uh, these volatile, rich compounds, you know, water, methane, um, have evolved over the complete four billion year history of the solar system. Because you will have had evidence of them from throughout that That's timeline. Right. That's right. And we just went to the moon and found it. And so it's it's going to be very interesting to see what, what develops out of this. So how do, how do they hop from one place to another on the moon? Boiling. So the water boils and then it gets so far. Some of it gets lost to the space environment, obviously. Okay. Some of it lands when the when the sun goes down and then the sun rises and the process repeats so and then eventually a few you know from the giant ice ball that hit the moon at the equator the a few molecules wind up in its lunar poles dispersed yeah mm -hmm. but they get trapped in the polar environment so that's a gross oversimplification i'm sure some of my colleagues are cringing as I describe <laughs> it, but, yeah. well and, but you can imagine why when i heard it hops from one place to another that you want to have more clarification Indeed. than that um so you talked about uh, up to Artemis three and the first humans that would would land by 2024. Are there plans for further uh, human missions in that timeline beyond that? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, the do we know to, much yet? Well, I, a lot of this is still under development, but you've seen in some of the public talks given recently um, at the NASA Advisory Council and other places, um, there is essentially uh, there are plans for other missions beyond 2024. So usually, um, since we're going to stay, since we're going to stay, yes. Yeah. So you've seen uh, you've seen charts shown that show um, you know brought one mission a year in 25, 26, 27, 28, mm -hmm. and continuing thereafter. So it should be it should be interesting to reestablish yeah. this capability to do human planetary exploration. What would you say are the both the immediate and the long-term goals of Artemis at the moon? Well, the long-term, the immediate goal is to reestablish a credible capability to get human beings onto another planet. And, you know, this, like I said, this is something we haven't done in a while. And if you're really going to be credible about saying, yes, we, we can go to Mars or go to Ceres or go to other places we want to go to, it makes sense to establish that capability in a place that's really only only a few days away where you can take risks and have some confidence you might be able to get back to earth in a reasonable time frame to preserve human life uh, the other there are other near-term objectives too i mean one of them besides reestablishing uh, planetary exploration with human beings is understanding the lunar resource potential and understanding how to use it Understanding how to incorporate that into human spaceflight architectures, I think, is a really key paradigm shift. Knowing f more about what's actually there on the well, ground. Knowing, well, it's both more about knowing what's actually there on the ground, providing ground truth, but also figuring out how to design systems that can leverage it once you find it there. Because, again, you have to do that for just about anywhere else you want to go sure. in the solar system. So it's a key paradigm shift in understanding how, understanding how to you know, refuel spacecraft in, in microgravity or fractional gravity environments is a thing we've never don't have a lot of experience with so we we need to get some of that understanding developing systems that can handle not just days on the lunar surface but months or even years of surface operations is critical for understanding for enabling again longer journeys to mars and beyond so i think there's a whole host of technology development things that should and will come out of the artemis program um, there's scientific discoveries about the nature of the early Earth-Moon system, of fundamental planetary science processes. Um, there's also things you can do on the Moon that aren't related to geology. There's interesting, um, there's, um, there's interesting things you can do for material science. There's interesting uh, scientific objectives for understanding the biological impacts of fractional gravity on human beings. Again, we have lots of data from ISS. We have lots of data at 1G yeah. on this planet. Very little between those two extremes. So under having astronauts on the lunar surface for months or even years at a time, or for weeks or months, possibly even years at a time, will provide a critical data point for understanding what fractional gravity, uh, uh, what the effects of fractional gravity are in human beings and possibly also developing coherent mitigation strategies for them. It is possible there is some number between zero and one where the you know, the deleterious effects of microgravity exposure are mitigated to some large degree, and that could be very useful for future exploration. I think it's very important that you point that out, that as a, a lot of times we, I think, maybe overlook the fact that 
the microgravity environment that we're learning about on the space station is not what you have on the moon. No, it's, it's not what you have on Mars either. So, there, yeah. there is gravity there. Not yeah. as much as Earth, but there is gravity. There, there. is gravity. And it turns out, um, you know, there are areas in the moon, like I said, this, this far side is shielded. It never sees the near side. So there are interesting things you can do from radio astronomy, looking for the early early cosmic dawn. There's lots, uh, there's uh, teams of astronomers who are really excited about putting a radio telescope on the lunar far side. With a, you know, again, with a field station on lunar surface, uh, permanent power production infrastructure, these kinds of long duration experiments become very possible. And um, the moon, I think, will uh, eventually become a platform very much like the ISS, where you can use it for a variety of interesting things. And uh, that's really exciting. You know, I can't, it's difficult to predict the future, you know, always in motion, the future <laughs> is. But uh, once you establish that capability to access the moon's surface on a regular basis, have infrastructure there to support long-duration experiments and activities, um, in very exciting things are going to start happening. It's going to be very interesting to see. You'd set up on the far side of the moon and able to look out in a, in a way that we can't do from Earth. That's right, because right? it shields all the radio transmissions, right? Those so, coming from Earth. Those coming from Earth. Earth is very noisy, but the far side of the moon is very quiet. So mm -hmm. you can actually do interesting radio astronomy from the lunar far side that is unique for the solar system. So, Talk a little bit about what kind of work we're doing now and work we need to be doing in the near-term future in order to, to support these goals of Artemis on the moon. Yeah, it's very interesting. So some of this work... Um, you know, we've restarted it. It was quiescent for some time. So some of that work is slowly coming back to life as we realize we have to do this again. Um, we're looking at where do you actually land? Where, where are the spots on the lunar surface that are safe that can be accessed by astronauts? And robotic precursor missions, how do you account for, um, is there enough space to put landers down close together without having dust impingement on each other? Um, so there's a lot of... Um, applied science research going on right now as we try to answer these questions in a way that makes sense and enables value to the taxpayer. We're working on the new spacesuits uh, that will enable lunar missions. Uh, we're working on developing mobility systems that will let astronauts, you know, like rovers, that will let them yeah. go uh, from their lander and go out to do exploration. We're working on ISRU systems, in-situ resource utilization, um, designed to use lunar resources and produce things of value to human explorers. Uh, we have American companies working on commercial landers right now to enable the goals of the Lunar Discovery and Exploration Program. So there's a lot of work which is all of a sudden come into very clear focus thanks to the challenge of the 2024 deadline. You've mentioned just then and, and earlier too about uh, international and private or commercial participation mm -hmm. in, in all of this. This is not just a, a NASA by itself no. effort, is it? No, it's not. Uh, we have... Um, we have, there's been for the last decade significant international interest in lunar exploration. And I think, uh, to paraphrase John Kennedy, uh, you know, it's as true now as it was when he said it back in 1962 at Rice University, whatever human beings undertake, free humans must fully share. There is a lot of international interest in the moon. And I think, you know, it's, um, it's incumbent upon the United States to lead the way back. And so I think there's a lot of, I think there's gonna be a lot of opportunities good opportunities for our international partners to make meaningful you know, contributions to the success of the program. Um, I'm, all that is being worked on right now, so mm -hmm. I would imagine that there's, there's a lot of excitement out there in the domestic United States community about, uh, about a renewed emphasis on lunar exploration, and there's a lot of excitement from international partners about the United States finally committing to go back to the lunar surface. Well, so. The European Space Agency is already participating in the Orion spacecraft. Other, but other national space agencies are, are I, I guess, are they being encouraged? Yes, to they're being strongly encouraged to participate, and I think that would be most welcome. Mm -hmm. so. And you talked about in LDEP missions, private companies are already working on some of these. Uh, I don't know if the right way to put it is, but but science experiments that will will be going and landing on the moon right, on yes. their own, um, as well as. You know, the work has begun somewhere, I'm sure, of figuring out on, on the actual mechanism of putting the human beings down on the moon, too. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, that process, there's already, um, there's, um, there was already a, 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 a set of, um, 
there was a action taken uh, earlier this year uh, we call on the inside Appendix E, which were essentially study contracts given to industry to study human human lunar landing systems, and that's in mm-hmm. progress right now. We, are you, before we get too far away from the mention of it, um, we were talking a minute ago about dust, moon dust. And one of the things that I learned a lot about during all the recent attention to the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing was how much of a real problem the dust was in in how it messes yeah. up our stuff that we that we bring there. That's actually true. It's um, but this is not. So the dust is a problem. I'm not, mind, I'm not saying that yeah, it can't yeah, be yeah, yeah, can't yeah. be uh, defeated, but it it is one of the really uh, one of the big things that people have to. Uh, yeah, it is. Learn but it's, how to. it's something you're going to have to do anyway, no matter where you go in the in the solar system. It turns right. out you find dust, so uh, it's something we're going to have to address. And also, keep in mind that most of the Apollo systems were designed in the early 1960s, uh, before we had any sense of what the lunar surface was like. So yes, they had a lot of problems during the Apollo missions. But some of that was caused by the fact they took good guesses, the guesses that were pretty much actually worked. We yeah. did go to the moon, we landed safely, we returned safely, we brought back. 800 pounds of lunar rocks, but um, you know most of those systems were designed well in advance of any realistic or actual knowledge of what the lunar surface was going to be like. So now that we have that knowledge, now that we fully understand the characteristics of the lunar environment, I'm actually pretty confident we come up with engineering-based solutions to most of the dust issues that people are presently worried about. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it is something you have to worry about. It is something you pay attention to. But at the same time, we actually do know what the lunar environment is like, and that will make, I think, all the difference in the world yeah. this time. It's, you're starting further you're ahead. Not starting than, from zero. Yeah, yeah, as we did before. Yeah. You've mentioned that a big part of the goal of the Artemis program is to return human beings to the moon to stay, to create a sustainable presence. And we've talked about how we want to use the resources that we will find there in order to support this sustainable presence. Is a sustainable presence on the moon the same kind of thing, or is it the same thing as a sustainable presence on Mars, which is the long, long, long-term goal of this? Well, uh, I would contend that the knowledge you get from going back to the moon to establish a sustainable presence there will actually make a Mars mission a lot happen a lot sooner. Uh-huh. Uh, once you have that workforce and industrial base recapitalized, I think it actually makes Mars missions more feasible, not less. and will happen more quickly, not, not farther away, but that's, um, that's common sense, right? Once, you, once you've done it on the moon, it should be a lot easier to get the confidence back to go back to the uh, thinking about how to do Mars. I think you learn you learn the general, at least the general outlines of what you have to do. But there are going to be differences between be the environments. Yeah, there are. But um, the, the I would they are actually probably going to be pretty similar. I mean, if you look at the body of work that's been done recently for the. Um, uh, there's been a, a, a lot of series of conferences, and people have thought about this a lot. There's this concept of the Mars Field Station, and if you look at what that is, it's shockingly similar to what what you might actually envision for a lunar field station too. So I guarantee you that establishing a sustainable presence on the lunar surface will buy down a significant amount of risk and, and develop a significant amount of industrial experience in how to create and fabricate uh, habitats. Uh, uh, and have them be successful for the Martian experience. Uh, you know, there is a big difference. It will shock you, I'm sure, to learn from going from a PowerPoint slide to actual hardware. <laughs> and that is a gap we need to figure out how to jump to before we can start to really credibly talk about going to Mars with human beings. And you will do that mm-hmm. on the moon in a place where you can make mistakes and it's less bad. Yeah. It's exciting to be looking at really doing something like this doing something that we did 50 years ago but in a in a you know on the steroids and in a, in a well, different I way would, it's different no? right so again okay. 50 years ago we did camping trips we have right. never established a permanent or semi-permanent whatever you choose to call it i mean humans won't be there the whole time they'll be there some of the time but we've never put down permanent human tended infrastructure on another planet before another world i should say the moon is not a planet it's a world mm-hmm. but we've never done that before it's it's new it's exciting it's a capability we have never had before and i think people say oh the moon we've been there we've done that no we really haven't 
We went there five decades ago. We landed in six spots, and we only stayed there for a few days. When we go back, this time sustainably, this time to stay, that is something we have never done before, and it will accrue incredible value for the United States, for our allies, and it will send a powerful message to the rest of the world of what we can do when we can put our minds to it. Because you see the moon with your naked eye. You can see it every day. Mm. No matter how dark the sky is, no matter how much pollution there is, no matter how much light pollution there is, you can still see the moon. And when you have Americans living and working on the surface of the moon, that sends a powerful message to the rest of the world about what we can accomplish. And that's exciting. Yes, and and that's, that, I think that's exciting. This is not the first time that the United States has said, or we're going to return to the moon and, and build on what we've learned from Apollo. Um, what needs to happen so that Artemis can succeed where those previous efforts didn't? Well, I think this is just me speaking personally. I'm mm -hmm. not going to speak for the agency in this case. No, I mean, what, do you, what do you think is required for this effort to work? Well, I think we have to be very good stewards of U.S. taxpayer dollars. More than anything else, they trust us. It is, um, it is a special obligation and a special privilege to work for the American people. And I think when you go to them and say, we need we need your support to do something really exciting and provide value. It is incumbent upon us to make it work. It's up to us. So we have to say, here's the value proposition. These are all the different ways. These are all the different industries here in the United States we're going to be creating as part of this effort. Here's all the different ways we're going to enhance science, technology, engineering, medicine in this country. And here is the value proposition. It's up to us to sell it. You know, we have to be good stewards of taxpayer dollars, but in return, we have to, we have to deliver. It's up to us. So that's my answer to that question. It is up to us. We have to deliver. We have to provide value. We have to um, do it in a way that is different and, and actually works this time. It's, it is not sufficient to say we're going to do something but not do it. If we say we're going to do it, we have to do it. We have to deliver. Dr. Samuel Lawrence, thank you very much. No, you're very welcome. If you listen to the first part of our Heroes Behind the Heroes series about recovering recordings of the Apollo 11 mission control team, by the way, it's episode 88, posted on April 19th. It's still there online if you didn't. Well, you know I tried to set the scene with some historical precedent for the attraction of exploring the moon. And now I wish I had talked to Sam Lawrence, too, so I could have mixed in some delicious scientific reasons why bringing the moon into our orbit, in a symbolic sense, was such a draw for folks back in the 1960s, and for many still is today. To get more into the details of what's on the drawing boards for the Artemis program right now, go to nasa.gov Artemis, or check out nasa.gov and follow the links to Moon to Mars and to Humans in Space. I'll remind you that you can go online to keep up with all things NASA at nasa.gov. Also, be a good idea for you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You will thank me. When you go to those sites, use the hashtag AskNASA to submit a question or suggest a topic for us. Make sure to make a note that it's for Houston We Have a Podcast. You can find the full catalog of all of our episodes by going to nasa.gov podcasts and scrolling for our name. You'll also find other exciting NASA podcasts right there at the same spot where you can find us, nasa.gov slash podcasts. Very convenient. This episode was recorded on August 28, 2019. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Gary Jordan, Nora Moran, and Belinda Polito for their help with the production. To Noah Michelson for his help in arranging the guest. And to Sam Lawrence for sharing his knowledge and insights about the object of our affection. We'll be back next week. <laughs>